This is the Master Brewers Podcast, brought to you by the Master Brewers Association of the Americas, a volunteer organization dedicated to continually improving the products and processes of our membership since 1887. Master Brewers brings you interviews with the industry's best and brightest in brewing science, technology, and operations. This Master Brewers podcast is proudly sponsored by Barnum Mechanical, a full-service design build firm specializing in turnkey process and utility systems for the brewing industry. You know beer. We know breweries. If you go into a pub in the UK and you order a pint of cask beer, you expect it to be perfectly clear. And if it's not clear, you send it back. This week on the show, cask beer. We talk ingredients, process, best practices, and authenticity, all right here on the Master Brewers Podcast. My name is Marcus Cox. I work for Mindful Brewing Company out of Pittsburgh. Before you uh, immigrated to the U.S., your brewing career began in Australia. How did you first get into cask beer? Did you encounter a lot of real ale in Australia? Uh, no. So the, the climate is, is probably the main impactor there, both in terms of potential cellar temperature and also obviously the ambient temperature. It's, it's much warmer than the U.K., so it's, it's not a big thing. Um, but purely by coincidence was for a, a super small brewery called Three Ravens and um, they had two customers when I joined and uh, they were both cask customers. So uh, that was 15 years ago. We were the only brewery in that town and in that city selling cask beer at the time. I guess we should talk about ingredients for cask beers. How about malt protein content? Why does that matter for cask beer? Well, I mean, there's a, there's a couple of things. Um, again, my, my perspective is on, it's it's very hard to define modern cask beer, so I defer to the the real cask beer that you get, you know, made in the UK at a, at an English pub, maybe in London or something. So that's very much my point of reference for these comments. Uh, one thing to remember is that um, the protein comment is based on the fact that this is a beer that has a very fast processing and doesn't have any chill stabilization. If you go into a pub in the UK and you order a pint of cask beer, you expect it to be perfectly clear. And if it's not clear, you send it back. Tying that in with the protein, the lower protein content obviously ends up with a clearer beer. And in the absence of chill stabilization, it all just makes sense. Sounds good. And we've learned from some other uh, episodes, especially with uh, Joe Hertrick, about some of the differences in protein content for European versus uh, North American barley. Do you want to comment on kind of, you know, some of the typical ranges you see there and perhaps, you know, what types of barley are, are most commonly used in the UK for these type of beers? Sure. Um, I, I think over time, the, the barley market or the barley providers have, have stabilized a lot of these specifications. So it's probably a little bit less different now than it was traditionally. Uh, obviously, with the American move from from six row to two row in um, the uptake of craft beer, that's that's made a, a big change. But you know, classically, typically UK malt comes in well under ten percent, and this is just a very broad generalisation. Looking at some of the main suppliers like Simpson and Beds and those kind of large medium companies, 
where if you have a look at something from Brees, and again, these are these are very coarse numbers. It's it's generally plus or minus twelve and a half percent for a two-row base malt. So it doesn't sound like much, but it is enough to make a difference in terms of clarity. Um, and then maybe to tie that back into brew house processing, um, you know, uh, protein content is inverse to extract. So the lower the protein content, the more extract we're getting when you're doing an English style beer with a single step infusion in a very simplistic mash tun type situation. Uh, you'll take that extra extract every day. All right. How about hops? Hops. Well, I mean, hops are a little bit more interesting. And again, you know, looking at the a couple of traditional uh, English varieties, you know, Fuggles and, and the, the Goldings variants, um, the thing that really stands out is they tend to have lower alpha and beta acid. Um, so that's something that really, you know, separates them from obviously New World hops and, and American hops included in that. Uh, there's very little geraniol present, um, higher humulone levels. So there's a, a, a particular softness to them, let's say, lower myrcene. Uh, and there's generally no um, beta-pinene present. So this this has to be a comparative statement, but the interbreeding of the Neomexicanus hops most likely with American new varieties has, has put some of these compounds into the hops. The English varieties tend not to have them and are much more suitable to traditional subtle dry hopping in the cask. I don't know if you've had a chance to listen, but our guest on last week's episode uncovered literature from 1893, which indicated one of the major reasons for dry hopping was to get those hop enzymes into the beer and encourage a secondary fermentation and dry out the beer. How important do you consider that to the process? Uh, It's certainly not something that's included in, obviously, classical literature. Um, Having seen the presentation at the the Eastern Technical Conference a couple of months back, that was definitely one of the things that caught my eye. Um, It's it's certainly something we see anecdotally currently at Mindful uh, with tank dry hopping. Um, It makes sense, but I don't think all the evidence is there to prove that it has, you know, it just hasn't been substantiated yet. Okay, uh, what's most important when it comes to yeast selection for cask beers? Uh, there's a couple of things. Um, anything to do with diacetyl goes out the window. So uh, the, the position is that diacetyl is an acceptable component of classic English cask beer. So you don't need a heavily diacetyl reducing yeast. The second component, which obviously is inherently linked to that, is that you need high flocculation. So you're talking about a beer that's going to undergo secondary fermentation in a sideways sitting cask that has to fall about 12 to 14 inches from top to bottom. Uh, You need something that's going to do that in a couple of days, so high flocculation. All right, do you want to comment on the role of Britannomyces in cask beer? Um, Again, this is is something that was flagged relatively recently by by Ron Patterson um, in, in some of his writings. So, it's, it's, again, another thing that's just kind of popped up that's yet to be fully substantiated, but it would appear that, obviously, given the name of the yeast, the time it was isolated, um, it's inherently linked to the British brewing industry. Um, the concept of, uh, at a particular time in England, there, were, there was a tax regime that taxed different aged beer differently. Um, the aged beer would contain Bretomyces is, is the contemporary thinking. All right. What about the biggest ingredient, water? So, obviously, the the breakthrough positioning here is when um, Burton on Trent became the, the brewing capital of the world, and their particularly you know high high degree of sulfates 
um, and a back note of um, Epsom salts and magnesium sulfate generated a really specific water profile that was amenable higher hopped beers and higher hopped obviously is a slightly different meaning because you're talking about much lower alpha acids than what we're used to now but it helped to accentuate uh, the hoppiness of the beers um, so basically once I think in what the I've got to check my references but once the concept of burdenization was isolated um, by industrial chemists and, and brought back to, to the rest of the UK that, that was really the, the major profile used across the whole country so the water is all these ingredients are super critical but the water is the one that's the easiest to reproduce because you just have to very simply alter the mineral profile i've seen folks use dextrose honey where you name it to prime casks what's best practice and what's considered most authentic most authentic is to um leave enough residual fermentables in the cask to ferment itself um Again, it's it's more anecdotal, but that that as you mentioned, the potential for that for that dry hopping in the cask to um, to spur a further fermentation is definitely in the mix. But the, you either have the wort that the beer is made from, or you have enough residual fermentables in in the near finished beer to perform that secondary fermentation. So that's the trade-off. You're allowing these these uh, non-desirable compounds to vent off, and you're allowing oxygen to come in. I'm John Bryce, and you're listening to the Master Brewers Podcast from the Master Brewers Association of the Americas. This episode is brought to you by... ABS Commercial is a full-service brewery and parts outfitter. From our Raleigh headquarters to our Denver office, we proudly offer brew houses and fermenters from three barrels and up, yeast brinks, boilers, kegs, chillers, tri-clamp, and other stainless parts, all with the quickest delivery and lead times in the industry. Learn more at abs-commercial.com or call 877-BREW-ABS. ABS Commercial. We are brewers. I'm really looking forward to the ASBC MBAA Brewing Summit coming up this August in San Diego. It only happens every four years, and it's not like any other conference you've attended. The Brewing Summit is 100% the science and technology of brewing. No pep rallies or business lectures, and you'll be surrounded by some of the smartest men and women in our industry. If you can only attend one conference in 2018, this should be it. Register now at MBAA.com. back to the show. Talk a bit about timing and temperatures when filling casks and also that balance of yeast to fermentables. Sure. So, I mean, these these yeasts uh, are relatively high flocculators, which means they're not um, they're not the best uh, attenuators. So, what happens there is that I think while maybe the dry hopping has a, a contribution to make, the main thing that inspires that secondary fermentation is just mixing the beer back up. Um, it's sufficiently roused in effect to to form that secondary fermentation. Um, the secondary fermentation conditioning temperature comes in at about um, 54 degrees Fahrenheit, um, and you're looking about half a million cells per mil to, to make that happen. 
one thing that um, is really critical with these beers, and I'm, I'm probably going off off the question a little bit, but this this number, this 54, 55 degrees F or something in that range is going to come up again and again and again. The beer is secondarily conditioned at this temperature. It is served at this temperature. It's in the glass at around this temperature. This temperature is the driving force of what happens downstream with this product. You mentioned a couple of days for settling time earlier. Is that what's typical or is uh, are you typically requiring something different there? Um, it, it's going to be in relation, obviously, to the, the starting gravity of the beer and, and the residual fermentables available. Um, clarity is a really good indication of, of a, a completed secondary fermentation. Um, th- there's a very English concept of uh, describing a beer as coming on. So once, once that secondary conditioning is taking place in the cellar, the beer stays in the same place. It doesn't get moved, and it's, it's super critical. So where it's conditioned is where it's dispensed from. The guy, the classic image of a Friday night with the guy running out with the magical little firkin and throwing it on the bar for dispense is, is a little bit kind of out of the realm for me. So that's, that's what's happening there. 54 degrees conditioning, 52, 54 for dry hopping, which obviously occurs simultaneously to the, to the conditioning. Um, the clarification, again, at that same temperature, 52, 53, 54, 55, that also lands us in a place where the saturation of CO2 that's been generated from the secondary ferment is perfect for the style of beer, which is about 1.15 gas volumes. So that's like basically half of... Yeah, it's, it's less than half a, a commercial American beer. It's, it's temperature dependent. So because a correct cast beer is dispensed at a particular temperature... And yeah, you're going to get because, that. Yeah, correct. And because it's vented, it's effectively there's a, there's a saturation of CO2 in the liquid, which may take it a little bit higher depending on whether uh, the life cycle of the beer, whether it's the first day of tapping or the third day of tapping. But at zero psi, the balancing point is always going to be that 1.15 gas volumes. All right, talk about the the role of oxidation in cask beer. Is it all negative, or are there some benefits too? Well, I think there are some benefits. Um, Obviously, anything that undergoes a secondary fermentation this rapidly is going to have some some uh, aromatic compounds that are not necessarily desirable. Um, so that's the trade-off. You're allowing these these uh, non-desirable compounds to vent off, and you're allowing oxygen to come in. A lot of these beers are crystal malt forward, so you know you're talking between 5, 15, 20% crystal malt. And that's probably the most reactive compound in there that's going to oxidize. Um, the shelf life of these beers is so short that the benefits outweigh any negatives from the oxidization. And again, this is an anecdotal, but there's a curiosity that a cask is sideways. It's, you know, it's, it's basically a barrel of beer lying on its side in appearance. Um, this is very beneficial for the precipitation of the yeast during the secondary fermentation, but I think deliberately it allows a greater surface area to interact with the oxygen and to allow the beer to mature, even if it is a very brief period of maturation when it's open. What about dispensing? There are beer engines and gravity taps, cooling jackets, widges, and all kinds of other accessories. What's, What's most important? And maybe comment on authenticity versus quality. So I'm actually going to bundle authenticity and quality together. Um, I, I will put the caveat on this that in, in the UK, um, breweries tend to be medium size and very regional, and it's a little bit different to here in the US. There, there's a, a tight house system where breweries physically own a lot of the pubs that their beers dispensed in, so it's in their best interest to, pre- interest to present them in the best way. Um, 
I, to keep it simple, I'd subscribe to the, to the camera definition of, of cask beer, so the campaign for real ale, um, and say the gravity dispense is great, you know, beer pump dispense is great, um, any extraneous CO2 um, that is uh, put into the cask at any point takes it off the list of an authentic cask. Um, the, the bottom line is a lot of the beers I've seen in the US described as cask beer by this definition are not cask beer. Makes sense. What are, what are the most common mistakes you see brewers making when attempting cask beers? Uh, I, I think it's a, it's a very delicate balance. I mean, the, the biggest challenge probably faced in the US is that there isn't necessarily a market for cask beer. So you walk into a pub in London and they're going to have a number of casks on. They're probably owned by a brewery. You're going to have your selection of four or five different beers and they sell in those very brief time frames of, you know, three to five days when the beer is at its best. Um, so over here, that's not necessarily the case. So without that, you know, without that, that history and, and without that kind of commitment to cask beer, it's very challenging to find cask beer in, in fresh condition in the US. And often you see it um, uh, kind of fashionably, fashionably dosed up with uh, extraneous things that maybe don't belong in cask beer. During the Victorian period, it's obviously the, you know, the pinnacle of, of cask. And up until 1880 in the UK, there was a tax on um, malt. So very quickly, brewers prior to 1880 in the UK, which is obviously the, the kind of birth time of cask beer, were very amenable to using non-malted products. Um, obviously, with access, access to the Caribbean, a lot of sugars came into the mix using non-malted products, using maize and stuff like that. There is a, there is a, a tradition of using not just all malt in cask beer, but um, as I said, it, it doesn't necessarily extend to these other crazy things like banana purees and that kind of stuff. Probably the number one thing you hear from folks unfamiliar with cask beer is, who wants to drink warm, flat beer? How do you respond to that? How do you describe the romance of real ale? Uh, it's, it's a very difficult thing to describe. Um, I was making cask beer before I'd ever been to the UK and I was working with, a, I had the pleasure of meeting Roger, Roger Protz and he came and visited me in Australia and, um, he gave me a lot of hints and tips on how to make cask beer better. Um, you, you, you don't know the real experience until you go to the place. So it, it's obviously body, but cask beer is something you walk into a pub, you drink it, it's a pint, it's not very expensive. People that are well-dressed, people that are not well-dressed are drinking it. It's just what everybody drinks in, in the UK. You, it's, it's all about the experience. Cask beer is, even with the, the wonderland that is the UK, it's, it's, it's heavily in decline. Um, it's, it's an instant, the camera, the, the, the body that drives the organisation of cask beer from the consumer level, um, has dropped from about 200,000 members down to about 160,000. Um, cask beer is an anachronism. It's not necessarily best defined as a contemporary product. It needs a way forward. It, it needs to make friends with um, craft beer, and they need to find a middle path where, where craft beer and cask beer can coexist uh, both here and in the UK with slightly different contexts. That was Marcus Cox here on the Master Brewers Podcast. Marcus is a member of District Pittsburgh, which was recently resurrected. Now, here's a message from the district president. 
Hi, my name is uh, Dan Yarnell. I'm a brewer over at Rivertown uh, Brewing in Export, Pennsylvania, just outside of Pittsburgh. Uh, I've been brewing professionally for uh, about eight, nine years now. Uh, and I am the president of the local uh, chapter here uh, in Pittsburgh for the Master Brewers Association of the Americas. Uh, initially, uh, the MBA started in Pittsburgh in 1935 and then went defunct in the late 2000s. So we've, we've had about 10 years where um, there's, there's really nothing, uh, so to speak. We were taken over by the Philadelphia uh, chapter, and then earlier this year, I believe it was February, that's when we did uh, reinstate uh, the chapter um, status. So for any brewers out there that, um, that are in kind of the western Pennsylvania and they're, they're looking for a local chapter, uh, please contact us uh, via either Facebook or through the MBA website, um, and all the contact information would be right there. Well, I can't get stuck, I can't be losing too much And then I'm heading out to any other place Man, my fist full of courage My heart full of rage Well, I can't get stuck, I can't be losing too much And then I'm heading out to any other place